Hey y'all. So when it comes to bodies, weight loss is not really something that I'm pursuing right now. But as you know, one of Vanessa's family members has been taking a GLP-1 medication and it's worked really well for him. So if that is part of your journey, you should check out the Roe Body Program. Roe provides access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Roe's partner handles all the insurance paperwork to help get the medication covered. If eligible for medication, patients have access to their provider on demand for any questions. Go to ro.co slash infamous. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash infamous. Campsite Media. Madoff. It is a name that will live in infamy. Thousands of individuals, charities, and funds that on paper were worth a total of $65 billion were wiped out. People invested their life savings with this guy. Not little old ladies in Dubuque. Sophisticated, incredibly intelligent investors. I mean, he just spent it. It's the work of a psychopath. It's the work of a financial psychopath, yes. From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Infamous, and I'm Vanessa Gregoriadis. This week, we have a special episode about the very infamous Bernie Madoff. He ran the biggest financial fraud in history, a Ponzi scheme. It went on for decades. Now, nobody could get to Bernie until one journalist, Steve Fishman, got to him. This week, I'm going to talk to Steve and play some clips from the news at the time. We'll also play some of Steve's audible podcast on Bernie. It's called Ponzi Supernova. Steve, I'm very excited to talk to you. You and I have known each other for what, like 15 years, maybe 20? Oh, God. Come on. It's like five. Stop. The math, is, <laughs> the math is so ugly. You are now a famous podcaster for Empire on Blood and Ponzi Supernova, which we're here to discuss today, which is your podcast on Bernie Madoff that was based on your incredible New York Magazine article on him, which became one of the most iconic stories of the 2010s. Had you ever heard of him before? I had never heard of him before. You know, the story broke on like a Thursday and our editor, the late lamented John Homans, came over to me and said, hey, let's look at this story on this guy named Bernie Madoff and uh, see if it has legs. You know, let's see if it lasts through Monday. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the world came up with an answer. What I had heard of was the, the, the market crash. There are all these cash calls in 2008, so everybody who's invested in Bernie suddenly wants their money back. And that's one thing that, that will sink a Ponzi scheme, because a Ponzi scheme, you're returning people's money, and Bernie said, hey, you want your money back, I'll give it back to you. But you're returning it with other people's investments. There's no new money in, lots of people want their money out. Bernie is in bankruptcy. 
the deal was that everybody talked to somebody who had talked to Madoff. Everybody was out there guessing. Everybody was out there, you know, doing good reporting and talking to people close to the people who were close to the people. And so it seemed to me the journalistic challenge, the journalistic coup was going to be Bernie. So what did you do first? (laughs) So I... I had uh, a piece of information that had showed up in a Philadelphia newspaper about this guy who had been in Bernie Madoff's prison unit, and he had gotten out of prison and smuggled out of prison a portrait he had done of Bernie Madoff in his prison khakis, you know, with his little name tag that said Madoff and his prison number under it. And since this is how things are, he was sure it was worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I believe the local supermarket bought it for $50 at some point. <laughs> but he, he was available to be talked to. So he's okay. peddling his good. And he's this amazing character. I was having financial problems. And one day I just got in the tub. I was taking a bath, one of those lion claw baths, you know. So I said to myself, if I was to get some money, where would I go? And the first answer that came up was the bank. (laughs) That's where the money at. So I said to myself, tomorrow I'm going to rob me a bank. So this guy becomes a bank robber. He's like uh, goes to prison for a long time. He comes out of prison on parole finally, and he comes out with this portrait of Bernie. He thinks it's going to be worth a bunch of money. It's not. But he is kind of a Bernie source now. This is a man that done stole more money than anybody else. We're talking about anybody else. One old man done took everybody. He done beat the record on everybody. He done went to the top of the list in criminality. I take the train to Philadelphia. I take him out to a steak dinner somewhat problematic because his dental work is not flawless. And he slides across the table, basically this, I don't know, his 10 stapled pages of everybody in the prison unit that Madoff was in. He, for whatever reason, had brought with him the roll call. So he had the list of 100 different inmates that were in Bernie's unit. Well, New York Magazine had a stable of interns, and some slice of them were hungry to do these kinds of stories. So we write like a hundred letters to every one of these prisoners. We do it like on legal pad. We do it handwritten. We do it typed. We do it on letterhead because the prison reads all the mail. So if they see like a hundred letters coming from New York Magazine, they're just going to confiscate them. What does the letter say? The letter says, I'm doing a story about about prison conditions at the present time, somewhat interested in your famous new neighbor, Bernie Madoff, please call Collect if you have a minute to chat. So I, uh, I start getting phone calls from people. I start getting letters from people. I start getting uh, a bunch of information that seems kind of relevant On the other hand, I get a lot of information about people's cases who feel they've been done wrong and if I can help. At the same time, I'm trying to get to Bernie himself. I got the the assumption Bernie Madoff wants to talk. He wants to tell his story. So it's just a matter of kind of 
puncturing that membrane that will get me to be able to whisper in his ear. So I'm doing things like uh, I heard he was a, a, a like a, a fan of John Grisham. So I'm sending him in the mail a John Grisham book. I'm putting money in his commissary account. I'm writing him letters. At one point, kind of as a joke, I sent him a, a play called called No Exit, a Sartre play. <laughs> I just thought, you know, maybe just something to get his attention. And the note, uh, and the note says, like, "Hey, it's Steve again." Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm writing him constant notes. Hey, I, I, I made an appeal to him, which was, you know, pretty frank and straightforward. I said everything negative about you has been said. So, you know, let's talk about the world according to Bernie. I'm sure you feel like you were taken advantage of. I'm sure you feel like you were not the sole bad apple in this big barrel of apples. You know, let's talk. Bernie doesn't call me back. Bernie doesn't How long respond. is this? <laughs> this is How long months. Is this, going on for? this is months. <laughs> I, you know, I've got this, these interns and they're all excited. What can we do next? And, you know, like I'm persistent. I will stalk you. You know, so I'm stalking Bernie. You're like the world's biggest nudge. I mean, I know because we sat next to each other for so many years uh, as journalists and you really know how to work a phone. Yeah, yeah. And I, I have to say, I find hearing no fairly motivating. I don't know why. What is that about you? You know, it just makes me angry that somebody wouldn't talk to me. I, I, I don't know. It's It's like a switch and it's you know, obviously demands some kind of therapy, but I, I, I put it to work. More after the break. I've always struggled with finding time to manage my finances. At the end of a busy week, the last thing I want to do is spend time budgeting all of my expenses or tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions I no longer use. But now I use Rocket Money, and it does all that for me. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, I have full control over my subscriptions and a clear view of my expenses. I can see all my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com infamous. That's rocketmoney.com infamous. rocketmoney.com infamous. Back in the 90s, Pepsi and Coca-Cola were in a heated race to try and win loyal customers by any means necessary. But when Pepsi launched an ambitious promotion that encouraged people to buy Pepsi and redeem points for prizes, they overlooked their own fine print in a major way. On each episode of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop, comedians join host Misha Brown to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question. Who thought this was a good idea? Like, who at Pepsi thought it would be a good idea to advertise that people could earn enough points to redeem a military jet as a prize? When they launched their Pepsi points system, they never imagined somebody might actually try to snag it. But a 23-year-old did, and suddenly, Pepsi owed him a jet. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. 
You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. You're listening to Infamous from Campside Media. So anyhow, I'm trying to get to Bernie. Bernie's not answering any of my my letters, my various importunings. I find a guy named Robert Rosso. I was in somebody's cell and they mentioned that you wrote and I saw a copy of the letter. And he gets to me, he's not in Bernie's unit, but he has read a letter that one of the inmates who got one of my intern's letters has shared with him. And Robert Rosso, who is a three-time loser serving a life sentence for nonviolent drug-related crimes, has turned himself into a journalist and a writer. I mean, this is a guy who in prison became a really tough, troubling prisoner. And he kind of saves his life saves his mentality, saves his sanity by becoming a journalist. I wrote you because there was a guy named Kenneth White that you quoted in one of your stories saying that he overheard Bernie bragging about this money that was inaccurate, I felt. He's got his own blog. <laughs> I don't know how inmates do it. They are so clever. He's got his own uh, blog and he's writing about Bernie. So he calls me up. And he and I start to bond over the journalism and we start to talk about writing and we start to talk about his novel. And I say to him, listen, I know you know Bernie. Can you just give him my letter? I'm going to send it to you. Can you just give him my letter so that I know he has it? And Rosso says, yeah, sure. So Rosso walks up to Bernie in the prison yard Bernie likes to do the long path. He likes to walk with uh, <laughs> a guy named Carmine Persico, known as the mm -hmm. snake, the godfather of the Colombo crime family. And Rosso interrupts Bernie one day and gives him this letter. And Madoff reads it, comes back to Rosso and says, what do you think of this guy? And Rosso, bless him, says, you know, I like him. I like him. I think he's a straight shooter. So now I've got a prison fixer who's vouching for me, who has this kind of credibility within the prison. And so he's the guy among just a few guys who can say to Madoff, you know, I trust him. And it means something. So now I'm at home. I'm watching. I remember I was watching a, a playoff game football playoff game. You can date it because the Jets were in the playoffs. This is your house, your old house in Tribeca that Axel Rose once rented. Yeah, it's this crazy. <laughs> it's 5,300 <laughs> square feet in Tribeca and they're only 1,400 feet above ground. So it's like there's a basement and there's a sub-basement. And from the sub-basement, you could hear the subway pass underneath, <laughs> hear the rattling. But it turns out that Axel Rose is looking for a cave and he comes in and, rent, and, and rents this place as we're moving out. And the little known secret is that he never moves in. He, <laughs> he has the place weird. for two years. I mean, he's the greatest tenant that ever lived. You know? I think his, ma so his manager threw a mattress on the floor at some point. <laughs> so Bernie. My phone rings, my home phone rings, not a number I recall having given him, 
but my home phone rings and then like, there it is. My two, at that point, young kids are running around and I'm, I'm yelling at them, shut up, it's Bernie on the phone. Shut up, yeah. it's Bernie on the phone. And I said, I like him. That's, that's what I said. I go, I like him. I said, he seems like a straight shooter. And he goes, okay. He goes, okay. He goes, let me go, let me go take a look and read this. I got it. Listen, Bernie is this guy I recognize. I mean, I recognize his voice. I recognize the way he comes across. You know, everybody has said he's down to earth. Yeah, but what they didn't say is that he was the kind of guy I would run into at like a bar mitzvah. He was like the uncle at a bar mitzvah. You know, he was the guy who showed up at Little League games. He was the guy who like was around town, but he was also like this Jewish uncle that I was very familiar with. So we had this way into, into conversation. So this was like a, a, a milieu that I, I understood and was comfortable with. So, okay. So here we, here you are in your, your enormous subterranean future Axel Rose apartment. And the phone rings. I can imagine you were so excited. And also, what was your approach to Bernie? It's basically what you said, right? It was like, hey, tell me your story. Did you keep that approach or did you turn into like bad cop at some point? No, I'm never bad cop. They have wonderful psychologists here and oh. they're very helpful to me. Wow, that's great. That's and great. Believe me. That's great. I have tearful sessions with her every week. It was very shocking to me when I heard the sound of his voice, because you think this man was worth how many billions of dollars? You know, how did he not take on those affectations? Was that part of the con? I don't think so. I don't think it was part of the con. I think in some ways, Bernie was always who he was. And he was like an outer borough kid from Queens. You know, Bernie always had the accent. And don't forget, listen, you know, a, a big part of his target audience was Jews. Um, they were Jews from the country club. They were Jews. He sat on the board of yeshiva. So they were like these Jews all around. And they recognized the Bernie approach. You know, he's what a Jew would call Hamish. It was nice talking to you too, Steve, after all these years. Bernie started, and I think this is key to who he was and how he got into this. Bernie starts in this very disreputable backwater of the finance world, the pink sheets. So he's selling and, and making a market in these penny stocks. You're basically cold calling customers and trying to convince them to spend, you know, a thousand dollars. So he is completely dissed by anybody who works at J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs. I mean, these are people who would not deign to talk to a guy like Bernie. And Bernie develops resentments. People forget Bernie had a legitimate business. You know, he was this guy who computerized the NASDAQ. You know, it used to be that you had to pay a dollar per trade if you wanted to buy and sell stock, right? You know, there were guys shouting on the floor, Bernie introduces computers and suddenly his commission is like 10 cents. 
listen, at that point, you might say he was a champion of the people. You know, he was bringing, he helped bring in this whole swath of people that, you know, you now identify with Charles Schwab, people who wanted to do their own trades. They go in, in large part because of a guy like Bernie Madoff. And then Bernie gets into this money management business. And he's getting involved with fancy people and rich people and really rich people. And it's extremely seductive for him. His reputation starts to grow. To grow. He has banks who are trying to get him to invest their money. It feeds your ego. I mean, you know, you say to yourself, all right, all of a sudden these banks, which wouldn't give you the time of day, some of them all of a sudden are willing to give you a billion dollars. I had all of these major banks coming down and entertaining me. It is a head trip. Now, Bernie's story is, you know, at that point, this is 10 years in. He knows that there's no way he's going to make money for these guys. There's no way he's going to give the returns he's reputed to be able to give. But he says it was a weakness of his character. He couldn't, he couldn't say no to this money. And, you know, was I like the bad cop? I was the guy who, you know, there's that 60 minutes kind of approach where you say, Bernie, you know, a lot of people are saying, and then, you know, you can say a lot of people are saying they were taken advantage of. And Bernie is not antagonized by that, but he's kind of rises to the challenge. My business was a successful business for 35 years. We made a very nice living from that. I just allowed myself to be talked into something, and that's my fault. And he says everybody knew. They say they they didn't know. They knew. And listen, you know, I don't think that's true. I don't think all the the uneducated, the financially unsophisticated people knew. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everybody was a little greedy. Everybody had to tell them that the returns. Bernie wasn't getting fantastic returns, but he was getting incredibly, incredibly reliable returns. Up market, right. down market, didn't matter. So, you know, there was always something fishy about it, whoever you were. But right. the, the point that Bernie's making and that he's telling me is that the big guys knew and the facilitators, the hedge funds made hundreds of millions of dollars off of him. And they obviously weren't doing any due diligence. And very clearly, some of them knew. And they were, you know, skimming a commission off of profits. They were taking a two or three percent fee. And these are the people that Bernie's really angry about. You know, he's saying everybody knew. Well, the sophisticated did know. And listen, you know, who went to, who went to prison for this? It was like people in Bernie's back office, people in Bernie's like hilarious back office. Like he's got five people with high school diplomas, you know, on rolling chairs, like with the Wall Street Journal open to the stock page because before the internet. And they're like kind of backdating trade. So they add up to a, a certain kind of return. So he can send people statements that kind of indicate the, the trades. Those statements are full of mistakes. You know, these things couldn't have happened. Like they show trades on dates when the market was closed. So these people who are not highly skilled are running this like Rube Goldberg operation and they go to prison. Does anybody with an MBA go to prison? Nobody does. You know, and right. I asked, 
I asked the U.S. attorney then. I said, so nobody with an MBA went to prison. And he said, well, you know, we tried. We tried. We couldn't get him. Infamous will be right back. Anybody who has a sibling knows that sibling fights are unavoidable. But what if every fight you had was under a microscope, on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince Harry and Prince William. They'd been each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother. But that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wandry's podcast, Disintel, is hosted by comedians Sidney Battle and Matt Belisai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle? Or was it something that began much earlier? Follow Disintel on the Wandery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Bernie has this, you know, 3 a.m. where he knows it's over. And, you know, I, I actually spoke to one of his sons who talks about his father walking around in a funk, you know, and he's writing these checks to try to give some money to some people who are closest to him. I try to give monies back to individual clients when I realized it was impossible for me to get myself out. They wouldn't take it back. I couldn't tell them that I would have been doing them a favor. <laughs> Some of those checks he never sends out. But Bernie, yeah. And, you know, don't forget, like, Bernie confessed. The FBI comes to his house. Sequence of events is he takes his sons and his wife to, the, to their home from the office. And he says, it's all a fraud. I'm a fraud. His sons immediately go to the authorities. They immediately left. They went to a lawyer. The lawyer said, you got to turn your father in. They went and did that, and then I never saw them again. The FBI visits him, and Bernie confesses. There's a lot of people who would lawyer up. There's a ton of people. I mean, we've seen that. Anybody who has money, and Bernie did have money, anybody who has money would be full of lawyers and motions and, you know, Bernie doesn't do that. So I'm not saying it's honorable, but I'm saying that there was a certain psychology at work. Um, now, you know, let's step back. Was Bernie a victim? You know, obviously not. And Bernie is incredibly callous towards his victims. You know. It was a nightmare for me, only for me. Do you really believe his family didn't know what was happening? I do believe that Ruth didn't know. And to some extent, I believe that the kids didn't know. I mean, I do believe the kids didn't know. I mean, the real question is, should they have known? You know, was there a part of them that turned a blind eye? It's like really hard to believe that the kids who are sophisticated financial people, I mean, there's so many red flags. 
So the answer to the question is, there's some plausible deniability because they weren't actually told. But really, you know, did they know? Did they know the crowd has weapons and was headed to the Capitol? Yeah, they do. I mean, that's also when I think about the son killing himself. You have to have some guilt on top of that. Yeah, I'm sure there was some guilt, but there was also, you know, he was a troubled guy and the Madoff kids were incredibly ostracized. And a lot of the hostility was directed towards them because they were out in the public, right? And Bernie was away. He couldn't be a target. But there you have the kids trying to lead this Soho life, going to restaurants, you know? So they were targets. And and the son who... who killed himself, he, he couldn't handle it. You know, he isolated himself. And, you know, their circumstances were going to be much straightened. He kept calling. I kept listening. You there? Yeah. He, I'm going to call you off any second. Do you want me to call you back? Or yeah, you? absolutely. Call me back. I... Okay. You have 15 minutes. But he didn't call back that night or the next. I waited. Weeks went by. Finally, I received a letter from the warden's office. I posed a, quote, serious threat to the safe and orderly operation of the institution. Soon after, I received a letter from Bernie. As I'm sure you are aware, the prison has blocked your email and phone privileges. Shut down. But I had my recordings. So was this just another story for you in the end? Do you think about it still, or is it just sort of done and dusted? No, I love that story. And listen, I loved uh, I loved beating everybody else, you know? I mean, come on, you know? I actually had an email exchange with uh, Graydon Carter at Vanity Fair because they were very competitive on the story. I said, hey, I got Bernie. <laughs> I find that people, people become, despite themselves, transparent at some point. And people will tell you a story that the listener understands and can evaluate. And people hang themselves, you know? People say things that are true for them that, that, the, that the listener will react to and say, you know, that, that, that's not true. Thank you so much for talking to me about your exploits in journalism. Do you want to plug your upcoming podcast? So everybody should listen for our upcoming podcast. It's called The Burden, and it's about a detective who was the most famous detective of his era, Louis Garcella. Fast forward 20 years, 16 of the people he put in prison have now had their convictions overturned. And part of that story is how we got Luis Garcella to talk to us. uh, (laughs) It it, it involves being beaten in a sauna with oak leaves, jumping into the freezing Atlantic and and other (coughs) hurdles between me and that story. Infamous is a production of Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment. It's created, executive produced, and hosted by Gabriel Sherman and me, Vanessa Grigoriadis. Shoshish Molovitz is our managing producer and editor. Rajiv Gola is our senior producer and editor. And Lily Houston-Smith is our associate producer. This episode was sound designed by David Devereaux and recorded by Ewan Lai Tremuin. See you next week.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.